0: On this episode, hot takes, baby. Not from us, but from you. We ask and you answer. We'll break down if your takes have any merit or if they're just a bunch of hot air. That plus, of course, our Kentucky preview. But first, as always, this is episode 69 of Positive Regression. This is the Possum Jones edition. Possum Jones, a Florida product a Hall of Fame name, first of all, in racing. He raced exactly one time in the 69 car. That was the 1956 Southern 500, a race where he started 65th, yes, 65th on the day and finished 22nd place, 28 laps down. But David Possum was best known for another facet of NASCAR racing.
1: He was a part of the NASCAR Convertible Series. His biggest achievements within NASCAR... Uh, may have come when he was competing in the convertible-only series in the mid-1950s. Jones made 74 starts and won two times in 1957, and he finished fifth in points that year. And in his 47 Cup Series starts, 22 of them resulted in DNFs, which means... There were 25 remaining races. He averaged a 12.8 place finish and he earned three runner up finishes at Asheville, Weaverville, South Boston, and Hickory. So Alan, uh, what, what do you think? Did I hit on the right thing?
0: Oh, absolutely. You know, the convertible series, a little known facet of, uh, NASCAR history, but one that, uh, came with its, its run of good drivers and, uh, something to look back on when we, we, when we look back into the 50s and 60s.
1: Do you understand the importance of the convertible series and 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 what it meant for NASCAR today? Because this was I don't. This was this was kind of like NBA consuming the ABA in that NASCAR purchased the Circuit of Champions and that was previously under uh, a sanctioning body known as the Society of Autosports Fellowship and Education, <laughs> oh. and the circuit, the Circuit of Champions was an all convertible series. But they had some things uh, going on previously, and then NASCAR experimented with some different tracks and formats. One of the tracks was Darlington Raceway. They had a race at Darlington for the Convertible Series before they ever had a Southern Five Hundred, and. The convertible series had a split qualifying race format that evolved into what we see now when we go to Daytona with the duels uh, during speed weeks. Both things, both Darlington and the split qualifying race format, originated in the convertible series
0: interesting stuff and old possum was a two-time winner one of those i believe was up in syracuse where uh, I i know very well so that was cool to see episode number 69 of positive regression let's get to it david because you came up with a great idea we asked the listeners and they answered we asked for the hottest nascar takes they have and boy did they deliver because what we wanted to do is to see if there was any you know any significance, any reality behind some of these takes? Because people have their opinions, certainly, but uh, is there any truth behind them? And David, that's where you're going to come in because that—that's what you do. Great, to be honest. So let's start. Henry Chapman asked us or said, "Adam's his hot take. Henry Chapman's hot take. Adam Stevens is an overrated crew chief. This year has shown how much he relies on Kyle's input during practice to make the car fast, and even then, I think Kyle outdrives his car and overachieves." David, when I read that, you know, the implication to me here is that Adam Stevens is only a good crew chief because he has Kyle Bush as his driver. That's how I read that hot take, and I think that's BS. Uh, but it's clear they, they're struggling this year by 18-team standards, obviously, but that doesn't, to me, make Adam Stevens overrated by any means. All the wins, two-time champion. Uh, I think that is a, a scorching hot take with not much validity behind it. What do you say? Well, I...
1: I believe that Adam Stevens is a good Cup Series crew chief. Uh, however, I can't prove Henry wrong on this one because if if you want to hit some bullet points, Kyle Busch has won Cup Series races with four different crew chiefs. He's won Xfinity races with twelve different crew chiefs, and I actually have them written down. I can name them if you challenge me, Kyle Busch is without a shadow of a doubt a common denominator. And furthermore, Adam Stevens has produced great strategy numbers on green flag pit cycles. He's had some notable gaffes, but they're really few and far between, and we just remember them because they were sort of high profile. But helping the good numbers is Kyle Busch's ability to get on and off pit road quickly and efficiently and he's one of the best in the series in doing that so when when Henry says that Adam Stevens may be overrated and it's the success is largely because of Kyle Bush, yeah I think every crew chief that Kyle Bush has ever worked with was dependent on Kyle Bush. I actually don't think it's that hot of a take because when discussing an all-time great like a Kyle, like a Dale Earnhardt, like a Jeff Gordon, they had success with multiple crew chiefs, not just one. They they proved their merit because, first and foremost, they were talented race car drivers, and that's where Kyle is. So, no, I don't think Adam Stevens is a bad crew chief, but, yeah, I think there is some validity to saying that Kyle Busch kind of just – carries crew chiefs along for the ride, and because he's Kyle, he's going to have success regardless.
0: Interesting. Now, I mean, when I think crew chief, I think you can look at the speed of the cars and the decision-making. You just mentioned the decision-making. You've also said before a good crew chief tailors his or her decisions to their driver's strength. So if your driver's strength is getting you know, getting on and off pit road and being one of the be- better drivers at that, I think that's a plus in the Adam Stevens column. If you're gonna, if you're gonna, uh, you know, work to those strengths of your driver and speed hasn't always been an issue. This year it is. Maybe you can blame that on the crew chief. I I don't know, but overrated or, or, I don't want to say even close to bad, but overrated. I don't, you know, this year they're struggling. I don't want to just brand him as overrated for an entire career, at least the five year stretch.
1: No, and I think the two championships sort of speaks to that. Kyle Busch has had. Wins with many crew chiefs. He's only had championships with one at the Cup Series level, and that is where Adam Stevens comes into play. And perhaps that is his worth. That is his lasting legacy. But yeah, I think that sort of uh, goes with the territory. If you become a crew chief for one of these greats of the sport— you're not going to be the primary reason for success. And that is just part and parcel to the job description.
0: All right. Good one. Good one to start with. All right. Next up, we had uh, two takes, two hot takes about stage racing. The first one from at who am I to say why on Twitter. Stage racing makes watching races way more entertaining, even if it is a gimmick. That was the first take. And then from Edgerwood on Twitter. Stage break cautions should be changed to just green flag milestones. Still award the points for stages, but don't throw the yellow flag. It will make green flag pit stops and strategy much more interesting, and it will also save time in races that are already too long. So two takes, David, on stage racing. Uh, I mean, I certainly agree with the first one, that that stage racing makes watching races more entertaining, even if it is a, a gimmick or something contrived. Uh, Since I enjoy the playoff format, I think the stages are necessary to reward the regular season uh, drivers and how well they are. And if I enjoy the playoff format, I also need to enjoy the regular season format and rewarding the drivers who do well in it. And I think stages provide a strategy of their own. We still see strategy at the longer racetracks like Pocono Like Indy, we've seen the last few weeks. uh, You know, some teams choosing to abandon stage points, others having to get them because they're not running and competing for the win. I like those differing strategies. Um, As for the second one, you know, just making them green flag milestones. I think there is some merit to that, at least at the road courses, David, because road courses are are singularly it seems about strategy. Having those breaks not telegraphed, if you will, or and knowing when exactly they will be, I I think would make for more entertaining road course races uh, because. That's how they used to be in terms of uh, not knowing and teams having to start strategy right away. So I I like some of these takes. What do you say?
1: You know when stage racing was first announced, and stages, by the way, are are the brainchild, brain children, I guess, of NBC, right? Like, so don't I mean when when you see stages, this is something that NBC wanted when they came back to NASCAR. They spend a lot of money to broadcast the sport. They have leverage and they use their leverage. When it was first announced, I thought that this was going to mean a longer intermission or something like a halftime break. Uh, when the truck series originated, they had halftime breaks. I thought that was what this was going to be because, because I thought, okay, I can kind of get behind this idea because you can have this break, you can get all of the commercials on TV out of the way, and we can see a lot more green flag action, which I was all for. That is absolutely not what this became, and it became uh, more along the lines of a competition caution. So it probably exists somewhere in the middle between two extremes, and I think that we should be... Leaning toward one of the extremes, but not in the middle. So here, here's, here's my take on this. I do like the stages. It does seem weird to me that people can complain about it when if you're just watching a race on a Sunday having a relaxing day, you can sort of choose to ignore that the stage breaks are even happening or that we are competing like this because there's going to be a, a winner at the end of the day. That's that's not going to get in the way of that. Uh, so I, I do like it, and I like the strategy that it presents. We spoke about this before Talladega that we think stages have made drafting tracks a little bit more palatable for all of the competitors involved, which is great. But I think I'm with Edgerwood 100% on the idea that the stage break cautions should just be milestones. In the cycling world, this would be a checkpoint. If you watch a major tour like the Tour de France, they don't just have an overall winner or an overall leader wearing a yellow jersey. They also have uh, a sprint race leader wearing a green jersey and a, a mountain leader wearing a polka dot jersey for the best climber, and they reward points during the race based on various checkpoints. There's some on the flats. Those are given to the sprints. Some in the mountains are given to the climbers. I, I'm i fine with that. Just keep it rolling. Do it at every track. Make the cautions become more natural, less artificial, and build a race from there. Um, I, I can see the merits in rewarding points during a race, but I don't want it to impact how the race breaks as a whole. So, yeah, I would say lean into the extreme. I like Edgerwood's take.
0: All right. I mean, that's obviously fair, but there's also a reality element to it in terms of this is entertainment and sports. And the the I guess the complaint is or the solution is that you can show commercials during those stage breaks, commercials that would uh, necessarily be shown during green flag racing. So if you want more green flag racing, I think the answer on the TV side is uh, using those stage breaks to get some of the commercial breaks out of the way because this is a business and it is entertainment. So there, there has to be a fine balance there. I think that's why uh, some of the, the, the cautions are where they are in terms of the stage breaks because that's when the TV money gets made. So uh, it's tough to balance both, I would say, David.
1: Yeah, that's, and that's fair, too. I, I That's why I thought when, when these things were announced, when stages were announced, that this was going to help get all of the commercials off the docket, out of the way. We could focus on green flag um, runs. Even even now, it's tough to do with TV because no advertiser really wants to spend money on the, the side-by-side where their ad is going on next to a live look at the action because – You know where a fan's attention is. They're not going to pay attention to the ad. They're going to keep watch of the race, which makes sense. But it is tough. You you do have to kowtow to the advertisers because they're the ones paying the networks, and the networks are the ones paying the series. So it is a little bit tough. I don't know that we're ever going to live in a perfect world. Um, But there might be a better way to, to do this. We shall see.
0: All right, next up on the hot take list, Mike Windsor asks us or tells us, Even with the win at Martinsville, Martin Truex Jr. has to be the biggest underperformer of 2020, considering the preseason expectations. David, a driver with a win already at Martinsville, I I can't give him that title. If you've got a win, as Martin Truex Jr. does at Martinsville, I I can't give him the title of underperformer of 2020. I think he gets a little leeway, again, having the the new crew chief with James Small. Uh, But you tell us, I mean, you made preseason projections. So what do the numbers say?
1: The numbers say that this is true. His projected, his projected peer of the 2020 season uh, was 3.422. It's currently 1.438, which means he's over two whole points off of his projection. But if you're a Martin Truex fan, I don't, know that you need to get too down on this because like Mike pointed out, he won a race at Martinsville and that puts him in the playoffs. So whatever is wrong with the 19 team, they've got some time to figure it out before these races start to really matter towards a championship. And I mean, it should be said, I I would expect some positive regression in the second half anyway, because if you look at some of his peripheral numbers, his surplus passing value is again a positive. He went into the Indianapolis weekend as the third best restarter in the series. And Alan, a guy like that won't just have two top five finishes to his name for an entire season eventually there's going to be an uptick.
0: Yeah, and when we talk about underperforming or for you know, for those who just may not know, your peer score essentially means what the driver is doing with the equipment that they have. So, the speed of that 19 car, what it's capable of, he's not living up to it. Is that is that how we can read that that disparity in in the peer projection versus what he's doing so far?
1: Yeah, because we're talking about a guy with top 5 speed right now. And if he's struggling to finish in the top five, certainly there's a, a pretty a pretty significant gap in performance versus results. And eventually with time, that gap is going to close. We talked about James Small and the success that some of the sport's all-time great crew chiefs had in their first years because it's not much. Uh, so our expectations shouldn't be high for James Small, but it's been a it's been a weird season to to have a, a crew chief debut. Um He hasn't been in the shop very much during the pandemic. He's rarely seen Martin Truex face-to-face and, and worked with him in that regard. So this has been a bit different. I would say the fact that they already have a win and have a playoff spot locked down works to their benefit because now – They can kind of get that problem out of their focus. They're in the playoffs. They don't have to worry about that anymore. Now they can place all of their focus on just getting a full race right. Because right now, all we see from Martin Truex is looking very good and very fast in spurts. And those spurts don't result in worthwhile race finishes. And that's what Martin Truex is
0: lacking. All right. Good observation from Mike Windsor. Next up from Adam Sturgeon, Daniel Suarez has been a mere victim of circumstance in the driver market rather than not having the ability to be in a top team. Uh, David, I think I think there's a good take. Uh, we've talked about Daniel Suarez before. He was the first driver out of the playoffs last year and likely would have got there with some strategy calls in terms of uh, stage points. So if he makes the playoffs last year, does that change our perception of Daniel Suarez if he's suddenly a playoff driver? I think it does. Look at Daniel Suarez's career in terms of the different crew chiefs he's had. His entrance into the Cup Series thrust in quickly a lot, a lot sooner than he planned. Uh, thrust to different teams a lot faster than he planned. Nothing on the business side seems to have gone his way, and I don't think that has much anything to do with his ability. So I do think Daniel Suarez could th- survive and thrive on a top team. He just needs that steady opportunity. Is that fair?
1: I think that's fair. I, I think Adam hit on a good point because you could make a legitimate argument that every one of Daniel Suarez's transactions since entering the cup series have been a result of just happenstance and had nothing to do with his performance. So even even from the beginning, he was promoted from the Xfinity Series to Cup a year before what was originally planned, and that was thanks to Carl Edwards' out-of-nowhere retirement. His crew chief that season was supposed to have been Dave Rogers. Rogers stepped down due to personal reasons after the first few months and was replaced by Scott Graves, a rookie Cup Series crew chief paired with a rookie Cup Series driver. Probably not the best situation. Suarez was summarily booted from his JGR ride because Furniture Racing closed, making Martin Truex a free agent. And we've talked about this on a previous episode. Defending Fern-Turow, champion, Martin Truex. Yeah. Furniture Row closed in part because they were supposed to get Daniel Suarez in a second car. So lots of irony there. Daniel Suarez last year, you pointed it out, he ranked 13th in pier. He missed the Cup Series playoff by four points. And that was his loan year at SHR. Afterwards, he was replaced by the president of the company's son. Whether Cole Custer deserved it is sort of beyond Daniel Suarez's control. So, yeah, I mean, and that decision itself, that took a while to make because Suarez was made a free agent after all of the marquee rides were accounted for, and even some of the middle-tier rides. He had to settle for a ride with Gaunt Brothers Racing, which prior to 2020 had never competed in a full season at the Cup Series level. And they are a team now for whom 25th place is a monumental finish. And unfortunately, this will affect Daniel Suarez's stock heading into free agency this year, because he can still look For another ride for the 2021 season, but he doesn't have a lot of good results to point to as of right now.
0: And just think about when he was in the 19 car, what level of success would he have had to have? to not bring Martin Truex Jr. over, right? If if Daniel Suarez has five wins, six wins, seven wins in the 19 car, and Martin Truex Jr. is still there for Toyota, still the defending champion, do, do they still pass on Martin Truex Jr., right? I mean, was there any situation where Gibbs doesn't make that move or Toyota doesn't make that move? It just seemed like the, the deck was stacked against Suarez, no matter what his results were for a young driver over in that 19 ride. And then last year, again, I don't know. As you pointed out, there were family ties. Uh, There were certainly, I'm sure, cheaper money ties. And when sponsorship on the line, it makes it easier to go with a younger driver. I just don't know how much of any of this was in Daniel's control.
1: Yeah, I don't know how much of it was either. Uh, So right now, I think if he can get to a point in his Cup Series career where he is able to control his own destiny or let his performance dictate his next step, that'd be the first because yeah. I don't think he's even had that yet. Uh, and he certainly deserves that. He's He's been, as I said, he was a, a plenty of, plenty productive driver last year. It was just a situation that SHR made um, based on who I've talked to. That was kind of split down the middle. There were folks at SHR that wanted to keep Suarez there. Um, that's not what happened. So what happens next, if it's dictated by what he's able to do on the racetrack, that will be a first for Suarez.
0: All right. Next up, good uh, good take from Adam Sturgeon. Uh, next up from Teague Dwyer, Steve Park would have had a statistically better career than Dale Jr. if Park had not been injured at Darlington. David, I don't see it. I mean, I, I'm not as good as the, looking back historically as you are. Uh, certainly, Steve Park had signs of, of, of you know greatness or goodness at least. I mean, he had wins, serviceable career, but to to say he would have matched Dale Junior's 26 wins, I, I don't see the evidence. Just uh, from from a 10,000 foot view in terms of the stats that were there, the few that we do have, I just don't have enough data to tell me that. Uh, I'm sure you break it down, uh, scientifically and greatly, David. So tell us, uh, what's your take on Teague Dwyer's take that Steve Park would have had a statistically better career than Dale Jr.? I say, oh yes. What? Because no, in, uh, yeah, Ryan won't say in, you're wrong, th- but I, I want to hear it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> in 2001, a 33 year old Steve Park ranked fifth in peer before his accident at Darlington. Make no mistake, DEI, Dale Earnhardt Incorporated, was built specifically for Dale Jr., but Steve Park absolutely could have been the DEI driver seriously competing for championships, especially considering that DEI's downfall was was kind of in the, the middle portion of Dale Jr.'s career, Um, what I call his Hakuna Matata years, in which he just didn't do a whole heck of a lot behind the wheel, almost as if he zoned out for a while, and you can probably reason to how that came to be. And yes, I just compared Dale Jr.'s life trajectory with that of Simba, but <laughs> bear with me. Steve Park was clearly coming into his own and could have been a rock during a time of uncertainty for that organization. He had two wins to his credit at that point and potentially would have won more. 26 wins is a lot. I don't know based on where he was um in his career. He was a little bit of a late bloomer just in terms of getting to the cup series, but it stands to reason that he could have seriously competed for championships as he got into his prime years. And um, Alan, I've always thought that to be the case. As a matter of fact, on motorsportsanalytics.com, if you become a patron, all of the different patron levels are named after drivers who I feel should have had... More prolific prime years, um, that, than they actually did. And some of them didn't actually see their prime years. Steve Park was, uh, injured at Darlington and never saw a productive prime. He is, he is the name associated with the $5 tier on motorsportsanalytics.com for that very reason. So Teague, I agree with you 100%.
0: Well, good take from Teague Dwyer. I had no idea, and I'm glad I got the education. That's why we rely on you, David, so I have been uh, convinced. Next up, Phil Spain says, Cole Custer might be back in the Xfinity series next season. That's his hot take. Phil, that's pretty damn hot coming off Cole's best career finish at the Brickyard. Um, I just asked Kevin Harvick about this, about Cole, and Harvick was quick to defend his rookie teammate by just pointing out not only do NASCAR drivers not be, they can't test anymore, but they, Cole, this year of, this year's crop of rookies has had literally no practice other than those first four races, no practice for these young guys to get used to any of these tracks, any of these cars, any of this competition. And so I know Cole would maybe not be producing as much as he should be, may not be getting the results that one would expect of him coming off a good Xfinity Series season, or even the year that Daniel Suarez had last year in the 41. But come on, let's give the youngster a moment. He's not going back to the Xfinity Series next year. Phil Spain, I do not like your hot take.
1: Uh, You know what else Cole Custer has not been able to do this year? What? Qualify. Oh, Cole Custer won twelve poles across huh. the last two Xfinity Send series <laughs> seasons. So it I mean, you can you can at least mentally get to the point where Cole Custer may not have an opportunity to actually exercise his best strength this season. You know, if he was in the Xfinity series this year, he'd probably win fifteen races and learn absolutely nothing. Hmm. Um I mean, Phil's take is fine, I I, I think, but it's one that's probably universal to all drivers under the ages of 24 and 25, especially right now, that they all need more seasoning. But there isn't a hybrid series between Cup and Xfinity where these guys can go. And like you mentioned, there there are no practice sessions on weekends. So yes, while Cole Custer is a 22-year-old driver who is struggling to pass in the Cup Series uh, and was thrown into the deep waters of Cup, this is probably where he should be if he wants his ability to progress. And right now, all of this is manifesting in a team ranked 27th in owner points. And uh, Custer's everything, all of his stats are pretty bad right now, even though he is serving as an upgrade for SHR on restarts over what Daniel Suarez produced last year. And crew chief Mike Shiplett, I think has been a revelation in terms of pit strategy. Uh, Cole Custer was not a lights out prospect in his first Xfinity series season. He actually ranked dead last among series regulars and surplus passing value in 2017. And it took time. It took three seasons at the Xfinity Series level for that to improve. So with no practice, with a weird season, yeah, it's going to take a lot of time for him to uh, resemble what we would all consider to be a worthwhile Cup Series driver.
0: Yeah, come on. Let's lay off Cole Custer, Phil Spain. All right, next up from Cliff Williams. He says, there should be no limit to the number of cars a team can have. I took this as an ownership type question, David. Did you like the the limit? Yes. Of, okay. So yeah. yeah, Cliff Williams says there should be no limit to the number of cars a team could have. Cliff, I say, bad take. There should be a limit uh, just because, look, there's 40 entries in a field now, right? I mean, how much, how many Hendrick cars do you want? Do you want them controlling an eighth or a fifth of the field, a quarter of the field? I think that's bad news for the sport. I don't like it, David.
1: <laughs> I am so diametrically opposed with what? you on this. What do, what do you want?
0: The, the Hendrick Gibbs Racing Series. What is this?
1: Okay, that rule was put into place prior to the economic recession of two thousand eight. That that changed everything. Okay, prior to that, there was this concern. Uh, widespread across the industry. I have a, uh, a pretty vivid memory of reading an article by David Caravello on NASCAR.com and he was, it was, it was a satirical take, but it suggested that there were only three car owners in this series. And even then I thought that that's a little bit exaggerated because if a one car owner owned a third of the series, they would also be on the hook For $260 million (laughs) worth of sponsorship, and I'm sorry, but that's not realistic. No one's going to go get that. That rule was also supposed to entice new owners to enter the sport. And there have been some, Ray Evernham, Michael Waldrop, Barney Visser, and they're no longer here. All, All we have left is Rick Ware. Uh, and there were other outside businessmen like Rob Kaufman who bought into other organizations instead of starting programs of their own. So I think the rule has outlived its usefulness. In my opinion, if Joe Gibbs Racing or Stuart Haas Racing can find funding to support a fifth car and thus create more jobs within the industry, then that should be welcomed with open
0: arms. Okay, but this takes us no limit. Would you, are you comfortable with five? no, yeah. no limit, yeah. no
1: limit whatsoever. Yeah, okay. sure. I mean, eventually you have to qualify, right? So,
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, I, I'm I'm fine with that. All right, uh, I I don't like the the but um, but, sure,
1: but what? But you're you're making the assumption that there seriously is going to be an owner owning a quarter of the field. You think ten cars is no. I, I guess impossible. I'm
0: exaggerating as well i mean you 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 deal with reality a lot better than I do um but all right, I mean you could sway me a little bit. I could see the argument where if you're gonna put a competitive car out there why why not have them available and able to take uh a spot and, and compete if they are gonna be competitive? but I think the more cars you add, the less competitive they're going to be on a team uh I, I don't know i I'd rather have more owners rather than fewer owners owning more cars. That's just how I see it. I would
1: rather have one extra Stuart Haas car than three Rick Ware cars.
0: That's fair when you put it that way. All right, Cliff Williams, I had the bad take. Well, you're convincing me. Your take is a little better than I first thought, so good job. All right, and finally, from Jacob Gregory. This is a good one. He says, Joey Logano and Chase Elliott are the only two drivers in NASCAR currently that I would not fire to hire Chandler Smith to a 10-year contract that neither party could easily back out of. And he writes, And Chase only gets on that honor because of the fact he's a license to print money for a team. David, look, Chandler Smith is a favorite here on uh, Positive Regression, but come on. That's saying a lot of a young man who has yet to show us uh, really anything in terms of what he can do in the big leagues. Not saying he can't or he won't or he hasn't done it at every single level, but when you're saying just Joey Logano and Chase Elliott, first of all, I would add Kyle Bush for the next 10 years. I would add Brad Keselowski for the next 10 years and even Ryan Blaney for the next 10 years before I would take Chandler Smith. Uh, you got to show me more if you're going to take off some of these drivers. It, it, that's, that's just a little too much for me to only put Joey Logano and Chase Elliott over the potential talents of Chandler Smith. It seems ridiculous.
1: Yeah. So I'm, I'm I'm willing with you to expand the list to include a few other drivers that are close to championship material right now, because what's the saying in baseball flags fly forever. Like the whole goal is to win championships. And if you have a driver that's able to do that right now in a program that can certainly do it, that's going to be very difficult to part with. Now, having said that, I want to see one Xfinity series season from Chandler Smith and then I think I might be prepared to make a similar judgment call for maybe the bottom 30 drivers in the Cup series. I wow. might I might be willing to to get there. Because really, how many drivers are capable of of winning a championship? It's not many, right? Like the the driver and the program uh, combination, you kind of need both to work. And if you don't have one, then perhaps you should start building for the future. So I I get it. And I certainly understand the enthusiasm for Chandler Smith, who – Makes his uh 2020 Truck Series debut this weekend at uh, at Kentucky. I'm very much looking forward to seeing that.
0: Yeah, what do you expect out of him? First mile and a half. I mean, this, uh, for those that don't know, I mean, if you've been listening to the podcast for a long time, David's prospect list. He's been at the top or near the top uh, for years now. And David, I, I think what you've been following this young man. You were in his living room <laughs> trying to get him signed at what like 15 years old. I mean, you've been you've been known about Chandler Smith for a long time, and he's about to make his big track debut in NASCAR, in the national, top national series. What do you expect out of him?
1: I think he'll be fine. I'm sure because he's part of Toyota's development program that he's had a heavy dose of simulator time, uh, which seems to pan out well for Toyota's drivers when they, they see tracks for a first time. Um, The only thing that uh, I can think would come to mind were Uh, Frankly, the complaints that Kyle Busch had about his own team, that they've had uh, a lot of off time to get some of their gremlins that they've had in the 51 truck and the other trucks right, and they didn't. I don't think Kyle Busch was happy at all with his recent performance in the truck series. So that could come to the surface and if that's the case then that problem existed before Chandler sat in the truck at a mile and a half track. I think that's the only limitation I see. Um I think it'd be a lot of fun. The Truck series has been uh certainly enjoyable to watch. We've talked about their restarts on past episodes. Um, it's been pretty wild and truck series at Kentucky, uh, just kind of feels like a natural fit. Uh, when, when, when do you not see a good truck series race at Kentucky? Yeah. And Um, it'll be a good time. It'll be a lot of fun watching Chandler figure it out.
0: Interesting nugget. The last four winners at Kentucky, David, have been 18, 22, 21, and 18 years old. So let's see what 18 year old Chandler Smith can do this weekend. Ah, yeah, there you go. I pretty good. I do my homework. Watch me on pit road, uh, FS1 Saturday night. (laughs) Uh, okay, we're, we're natural uh, progression into our Kentucky preview for the weekend. We'll focus on Cup here, but uh, David making a trip to the Bluegrass State. Uh, interesting question because we've been going there a few years now, and uh, actually, I mean NASCAR has been going there much longer before it had a full Cup race. A lot of testing done there in years past. So, uh, just straight up question: Is Kentucky a good racetrack? What do you think? How do you judge? You know, that? I liked. Yeah i I liked
1: Kentucky. More before the repave back mm. when it was bumpy and weird. Yep. You remember that? Oh, it was yeah. great, right? Like road profile should matter more than it currently does in, uh, in NASCAR. But even since then, Kentucky puts on what I think is a low key entertaining show. Uh, I was at the 2015 race and this one comes to mind because NASCAR tried out a rules package that ended up becoming the 2016 rules package. And that was just when cars were darting high and low all over the track. And, um, that race was just wild, a lot of fun. And last year's race, I thought was a blast with the finish between both Bush brothers, uh, coming down to, uh, ultimately a, a lack of tire wear benefiting in a good race that Kurt Busch managed to turn on its head. I thought he was he was done for sure, but a, a good final restart. And I don't think Kentucky gets enough credit for putting on good races across all of its series, but I, I think it absolutely does.
0: Yeah, and I agree in terms of, look, repaves will always get kind of knocked because, I mean, you have to repave the track eventually, right? And that provides, I don't know, it, it takes the character down a little bit. I do like the different corners. Remember they reconfigured a little bit. I like tracks with different corners just because it's something different teams have to think about. Uh, and David, one thing, I mean, just looking back on the dates of the Kentucky races, they always seem to be a Saturday night in July, right? And it always seems to be a lost race on the season. And when I think back of if there's one race I'm going to miss or for just natural reasons that, you know, you're out, you're doing stuff. It's the summer. It's a Saturday night in the summer in July. And it just seems like it always gets overlooked as a race. So maybe that's why we don't have the best memories of Kentucky. Good news is it's on a Sunday afternoon this year. So that will be something different on Fox uh, or FS1, uh, the Fox family. So maybe that'll give us a different take on what we think of Kentucky. But I I just always remember every year being a summer race on a Saturday night that you just kind of forgettable, right? I mean, it's just, you know, the doldrums of summer, the playoffs are almost there, the middle of regular season. It just always kind of got lost in the mix. So maybe we'll have a different take on it after this one. But,
1: yeah, uh, that's a good point. I, I didn't I didn't consider the the timing of it um, to have that effect. I think for me, it it was always placed kind of in the right spot. Usually a, a palate cleanser, somewhat after the Daytona July race went poorly, <laughs> and it was just it was it was good to get to a race where you saw some legitimate passing and strategy kind of a combination of all things and really hard racing which is what we saw last year with this rules package and I hope to see you again this weekend
0: yeah good stuff and last year we, we know what happened there last year so let's talk about restarts because they will always be important uh the restart dynamic at Kentucky uh tell us about that David
1: yeah so the outside groove was the preferred groove in the 2019 race and ultimately it it mattered uh, into how the result came to be. But the retention rates were close relative to what we see at most tracks. 75% retention for those in the outside line compared to 53% retention for those on the inside. And yes, last year's race was won by Kurt Busch. Thanks to his leap from fourth, second row, to first. And he had a, he had fantastic positioning on that final restart. The fourth place spot in last year's race saw 100% retention and four instances in which a driver gained multiple positions. Kurt Busch happened to find himself in a marquee spot, the most important restart spot at Kentucky Speedway last year and took full advantage of it. So keep an eye on fourth place this weekend.
0: Interesting. I will look at that while we watch the weekend of races. Uh, another mile-and-a-half racetrack, obviously, with Kentucky. Uh, we're more than halfway through the season, or we're pretty well into the season, uh, the regular season at least, so I think we have some data points. Who has been fast on the mile and a half, David, when we're looking at pure central speed?
1: Well, this is a good question. We've spent the last three races on flat two-mile tracks, which cater to the Fords of Stuart Haas Racing, and this weekend should be different in that regard, even though uh SHR did perform well at Kentucky last year. Daniel Suarez, who we've already talked about, led 54 laps, actually, but... Uh This Sunday, I think Hendrick Motorsports will matter again because they rank first on 1.5-mile tracks in speed with Chase Elliott's car. Ryan Blaney ranks second in central speed, followed by Joey Logano, Alex Bowman, and Martin Truex. And boy, those are some names that we haven't really been talking Mm-mm. a lot about lately. This may be the first real competition that Kevin Harvick and Denny Hamlin have seen in, oh, about two weeks' time, (laughs) maybe three if you want to throw uh, Talladega out. But that has me optimistic. Alan, you prefer parody, right? Because I think sure. the way this race is shaping up, we're we're going to see a number of different favorites come to the surface.
0: All right. That's good. It's good to have some names in the mix, although I have enjoyed the duel. I mean, when you think back in the history of NASCAR, I mean, the duel that's shaping up between Denny Hamlin and Kevin Harvick and seeing it play out, right? As finishing first and second. Uh, I mean, I mean it, almost, it should have probably happened for a third time in the Brickyard, right? Those two drivers finishing first and second. I like that natural story playing out. So as much as I like as many competitors as possible, it's it's really cool to see two drivers, you know, kind of one up in each other, two teams, two strategists, two pit crews, uh, all that stuff. It's pretty cool. Um, but no, we'll see, uh, if the, if the other Gibbs cars and the Hendrick cars can, uh, you know, make their names once again this season. All right, let's pick our contrarian contenders, David. Uh, last week, I'm, I, I came within two corners of nailing the Maddie D pick, and that really pissed me off. I'm, again, Maddie D is probably far more pissed off as is Austin Dillon, but, uh, I was a little pissed off when Maddie D didn't make it to the finish line, but that's just me. I've got my eye on
1: William Byron hmm. for this weekend. He enters the Kentucky race with the 7th fastest car on mile-and-a-half tracks. And that's interesting because the results that he's produced on mile-and-a-half tracks certainly don't uh, relish speed. He's earned finishes of 22nd at Las Vegas, 20th at Charlotte, 12th at Charlotte, 33rd at Atlanta, and 9th at homestead which means we haven't seen a finish that jives with his top end performance and eventually that should correct itself and i think it might happen uh this sunday are you saying positive regression oh i think so <laughs> i it, it's Ding! it's bound to happen yeah. right like you can't you can't keep a bad team down for so long and this 24 team even Last weekend, you saw Chad Knauss' reaction to, yep. to to blowing a tire. It's, gosh, they've got a lot of speed with very little results to show for it due to a litany of circumstances. So at least once this season, it has to go right for them, you'd think.
0: Yeah, we even got an F-bomb on the radio from Willie B. I thought that was pretty funny. So, um, so you picked uh, William Byron. I'm picking another young driver. David, this is more of a gut call than anything, but I'm going with Christopher Bell. Christopher Bell did not start off this season very well. Uh, call it the rookie doldrums, call him whatever you want to. But lately, since we got back from the COVID break, uh, on the mile and a half, look, he had an eighth at Homestead, ninth in Charlotte. He was 18th in Atlanta, one lap off the pace, but what have you? I'm, I just. I think it's coming around. He changed expectations uh, where, you know, running 12th to 8th is something of a victory. We've seen him run in top fives during races. I think he can sneak out a top 10 and be a tremendous value for your uh, fantasy team or for your picks this weekend. So I think he is my contrarian contender.
1: Currently ranked 13th in peer, Christopher Bell. And here's an interesting fact for you. He did not retain... A non-preferred groove restart position inside the top 14 until race number seven. And now he is the number one non-preferred Groove Restarter wow. in the series. <laughs> that, All right. That is... Uh, I went, did not so know when that. You, when you talk about the turnaround that's been happening, oh, it's been quite a turnaround for, for Christopher Bell. And I've got to think that it has uh LFR optimistic and uh I don't know. Let's see where this takes him. Could take him to the playoffs.
0: Good for him. Good for him. All right. Well, good episode. Episode number 69 of Positive Regression. Don't forget, we are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, and Luminary. We are available no matter your device. Our entire catalog of episodes is available for free at posregpod.com. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or a review. That stuff really does help spread the word about this podcast. We notice. It's so appreciated. Tell your friends. If you have questions, if you have hot takes, send them to us. You know we read them on Twitter at posregpod, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. David, you're always working hard. What are you working on?
1: This week on MotorsportsAnalytics.com, I looked into the big three of 2019 in the Xfinity Series. Cole Custer, Christopher Bell, and Tyler Reddick uh, wanted to give them a proper evaluation, dusted off the spider charts, uh, just to understand how their teams were going about grabbing track position this season. And later in the week, you will see an article about Kyle Bush, the good and the bad of his 2020 season and where it can go from here. So please do me a favor. Check all of
0: that out. I love a nice spider chart. Good stuff. Uh, you can catch me on the uh, Fox Family of Networks, of course. Watch Race Hub every night, Monday through Thursday at 6 p.m. Earlier this week, I interviewed Kevin Harvick after the Brickyard. We talk a little Brickyard, but there's there, there's more stuff in there about the season, oss as a whole, so go check that out uh, for a little insight on the 2020 season with Kevin Harvick. But also, I'm back at the track this weekend at Kentucky. I'm doing the ARCA race from Pit Road and the truck race in the same day, so that me be my first foray into the the arca series so uh, uh we can all watch that together let me know how i do there but uh keep it on the fox family remember it is on uh fs1 and fox this weekend all the the racing and then it switches back to nbc uh, after the all-star race but uh just just watch all the racing you can and uh for david smith i'm alan kavana thank you for listening to positive regression we'll be back next week